you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. For the last couple of months, almost three months, we've been talking about renewal, revival, reformation within our church and within the body of Christ all over and the need for that. That we live in a day where we see the examination that Jesus made of his church in in, uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We see that examination in our own lives and we see that examination in our churches. We see that the church has become something different, I think, than what Christ intended for his church to be. We see the church as comfortable. We see the church as very... uh, very affluent. We see the church as very, uh, you know, unexcitable, if you will, in so many ways. We find ourselves not grieving over the lost. We find ourselves content to say, this is what we believe and we believe right, but we, we never let that belief really infect our lives or affect our lives. It's just sort of like we go through the motions Many times on any given Sunday morning and every now and then on another night or evening or whatever, but we, we go through these motions of just, just saying, you know, Sunday is a great time to gather and it's a great time to be a Christian and it's a great time to sing together and, and, and do all these things together. But when we go out those doors for six other days, it's kind of like, you know, I'm a Christian on Sunday, but I'm just who I am every other day of the week. I'm just me. I'm just a good American trying my very best to be nice to as many people as I can and try to get by in the world in which I live. That's not biblical Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. We we looked at Jesus talking to those seven churches and he said, you've left your first love. He said, you've allowed Jezebel in, you've allowed sexual immorality in. He said to another, you've done these other things, you've got false teachers, the Nicolaitans and and the Balaamites, they're all in there. I mean, you've allowed all these things to just transpire within the church. And it it weakens the church, It, it tears the church down when you tolerate that which is displeasing to God. Last Sunday we looked at Revelation chapter 4 as we... We looked at that vision that John had into heaven. And and I asked you three questions. I said, what will it take to free you from the world, to pry you free from the world? And the second was, what will it take to set you free from the world's idolatries? What will it take to keep you from trusting in things that are no gods at all? And what will it take to free you from the world's immoralities, adultery, theft, lying, all the things that that are going to be talked about in our text today with the rich young ruler. What will it take to free you from the world's grasp on you, the world's idolatries, and the world's immoralities? And the answer I gave, and it's still the same this week as it was last week, is the only answer is that will, will do that is it will take you seeing God as he is. Not as a caricature, not as a, an a, a Uncle Sam with sort of a halo around his head, 
but seeing God as he truly is, high and exalted and lifted up, sovereign and ruling on his throne, commanding our attention, commanding our allegiance, commanding our obedience in this world. When you see God as he really is, it will change your life. It will change my life. But we have to look to him in order to be able to see him. So we looked at the Christ examination of the church post-resurrection, post-church uh, uh, being formed there in Jerusalem and spreading out across all of Asia Minor and through that part of the world. Today we're going to look at Christ's examination of the church pre-resurrection, pre-church being established. Now I know there's argument we can say the church has always existed in the mind of God and the church has always existed in the remnant in Israel and, and all these things. That, that's not my argument today. My argument today is we're going to look at what Jesus said about the church before he went to the cross. We, we know the cross is the, is the central point of all history. We know the cross is, is really what makes the difference, the cross and the resurrection, and then his ascension. But what did he say before he went to the cross? In, in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, you have what has been dubbed the story of the rich young ruler or the rich young man. It doesn't say he's a ruler, but, but we kind of have made that assumption because it, it, to be that rich, you would almost have to have some kind of authority in that day. We, we, we actually see him here, and he's almost could almost be a twin brother to the Apostle Paul. I guess in one sense, he could... He's kind of like the Apostle Paul was. He wasn't, I don't think, the Apostle Paul in early days, but, but he could have been because what, what Pastor Scott read earlier, you know, about Paul's own experience. He said, listen, I had everything. I had wealth. I had religious prestige. I did all the right things. I, I obeyed the law the best I can. And, and yet when I came to Christ, all that became garbage, became worthless. And this rich young man comes to Jesus. Follow along as I read. I'm reading from the... English Standard Version. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I'm not going to deal on that all the ending of the sermon, but it's on a parenthetical note. What Jesus is saying to him is not, I'm not God. What Jesus is saying to him is this, why would you call me good when you're not ready to acknowledge me as God? That's the issue there, okay? He's not denying his deity. He's expressing it in a way that this young man might be able to finally come around to see who he really is. So why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man looked at him and said to him, Father, or excuse me, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Wow. I'm a good man. I've worked hard at keeping the law. I've worked hard at obeying the Ten Commandments. And, and you just listed those off, Lord, so... I guess if that's what it means to get eternal life, then I guess I've got it. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. Had compassion on him. 
and said to him, you lack one thing. Now, I'll be honest with you, I wish Jesus could look at Bill Haynes today and say, Bill, you lack one thing. Can't do it. You'd have to say 1,000 things maybe or 100,000, but, but not you lack one thing. You just got, you're just missing it at one point. And he goes on to say, listen, you, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And disheartened, the young man went away. Sorrowful, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want you to see a couple of things here before we really get into it. I want you to see that this young man came and he asked the right question. It's a question every one of us in here ought to be concerned about. What must I do? What must I have? What must I experience in order to have eternal life? Most of us in the 21st century United States of America are asking ourselves, what must I do to be rich? What must I do to be liked? What must I do to have influence? What must I do to rise the ladder in my job so that people look to me and I can reign over and rule over people and I can have the authority over people? Most of the questions that men and women ask, even those in the church today, folks, is what can I do to get what I want in this world? Their focus is all wrong. They're not looking, as Revelation chapter 4 tells us to do, to the throne room of God. They're not saying, Lord God, I want to see your glory like Moses did and like Jesus showed the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, I just want to see your glory and it'll be enough for me. They want to say, I want to have my glory. And if I have my glory, then it'll be enough for me. If I have the things of this world, if I have... If I have like the Apostle Paul, like in, in Philippians chapter 3, if, if I can be looked at as being very religious and I can have a nice, comfortable Pharisee job, you know, so that I have money, then everything will be all right. He, he asked the right question. And we need to ask that question. The, the second thing I want you to see in this little story that Jesus tells about this rich young man is that he was trusting in his morality. He was a therapeutic, moralistic deist in 20th century terminology. He believed that God existed. He, he believed there was one who had given the law, and, and he thought that by just working really hard, he could keep that law. Now, i got to be honest with you. I don't think for one minute Jesus thought that he had kept every one of those things he mentioned. Because don't defraud others could take into account stealing and lying it could it could be just a embezzlement it could be any number of things but but all and and he always also redefined adultery as lusting after someone in your heart and he redefined other things so i don't think for a minute jesus thought well this guy he's, he's ready to sign up he's really a moral guy but the young man thought he was good i can't help but remember the time when someone said part of my sin was that I'm talking about me that I preached that uh, salvation was only by grace through faith in Christ alone what about our works was the question asked after that the scripture says our works are filthy rags 
Our works are good if we are in Christ and they work out of our salvation experience with Him. But if we're trying to do our works like this young man was in order to get eternal life, then we are missing it altogether. So he asked the right question, but he was trusting in his goodness. He was trusting in his morality. So Jesus said just like one thing. Here's what I want you to do. Go and sell all you've got. And he was rich. Go and sell all you've got. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven laid up for you. Come and follow me. I want to be just gut level honest with you here. I don't believe for a minute that it requires selling everything you got and giving it to the poor to follow Christ. I believe it does require seeing everything you got loosely and not holding on to it, uh, thinking that's what really matters and putting that above your following Christ. And I think that's the issue with this rich young man. He said, look, go and sell it, give it to the poor, and then come. And the real thing he was lacking was follow me, be obedient to me. Several years ago, David Platt, who is now the president of the uh, International Mission Board uh, in, uh, of our Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a book. Put that book up there on the board. Uh, it, there's a cover of it. It's called Radical. Called Radical, you know, taking back your faith from the American dream. When Platt, he, he preached sermons prior to the book. That book is just a compilation and a rewriting of his sermons. When he preached that and when he wrote this book, he made a lot of people really mad. I mean, he really did. I mean, it was, it was like, who is he to tell us that, that we're to look to Jesus and be radical for Jesus above everything else? Of course, he made it clear in the book. It wasn't him telling you that. It was Jesus telling you that. Well, I was impressed that a few, few days ago, uh, one of my favorite websites, the Babylon Bee. How many of you know what the Babylon Bee is? Yeah, it's a satire site. They came out with the announcement of Platt's latest book that's coming out real soon, and it's entitled... Kind of radical. It's kind of radical. And they said it's a follow-up to his hit 2010 book, Radical. And it's a book, it's a new book targeting modern suburban Christians, American Christians. This book will focus on being sort of radical for Jesus or lukewarm fire, on lukewarm fire for him in some of our daily activities and interactions with others. Well, the Babylon Bee is a satirical site. But sometimes satire hurts. Sometimes satire pierces. Because, quite honestly, I, I think that's really kind of where American Christianity is. It says the book will reportedly feature a section on how to compartmentalize your faith. We don't need a book to tell us how to do that. We do it quite well. Uh, those who struggle with their Christian beliefs occasionally uh, seeping over into their work and their home lives, will learn how to regulate the gospel to Sunday morning church attendance. The implications of the, uh, of the gospel on how we spend our time and our money will also be addressed. As Platt assures, work, school, home, finances, church attendance, uh, Platt will help you rationalize your lack of passion for Jesus so that you won't feel guilty. So that was really the thing that he was criticized for when he wrote the first book. He said, it's just calling us, making us feel guilty. 
what he was hoping to do was calling us and make us feel Christian. Jesus says to this young man, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And I really think the key there is following him. I think possessions and things that grab us and hold us tight in the world will care for themselves when we are following Christ. I really believe that. Jesus made other statements. He went on in this same passage in verse 23 and said, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, I got a feeling his disciples sitting there going, What? This guy wants to follow it. This guy wants to come with us. This guy's got means. This guy's got money. We could use that. I'm sure Judas is sitting back there saying, hey, the treasury is not all it could be, Lord, and he can... Don't tell him to give it to the poor. Tell him to give it to our little band of disciples' treasury here. I'll be glad to keep the money. Be glad to take care of it. The disciples looked at him, so he turned around and looked at his disciples, and he said this, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And, And folks i got to be honest with you, I'm sitting here wealthy. I don't have as much as a lot of people do, but i got as much as I need and more. So he says, how difficult it is for, a wealth, for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And don't, I don't care what the textual critics say. He's not talking about a gate that's a small gate going in Jerusalem. He's talking about the eye of a needle. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus said to them, looked at them and said to them, With man it's impossible, but with God, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He said basically the same thing to Luke in Luke's gospel, Luke 14, but he he said a little differently. He said, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to these great crowds, because, I mean, he was doing miracles, folks. He was making the blind see, he was healing the lame, he was, he was feeding 5,000 and then 4,000. I mean, he was, the people were amazed. The great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, take up his own cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. He said it, Matthew records it a little differently. It's it's not a contradiction, it's just, I think, a clarification 
where Matthew records in Matthew 10, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. That's discipleship. That's real Christianity. That's coming to the point of saying, Lord, my life is yours. You have redeemed me from death and from darkness. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and you have raised me to life in Christ. By your grace, you have given me something that I did not deserve. I cannot be kind of radical. I cannot be Laodicean in my lukewarmness toward you. You have done a work in my life that is extravagant and unbelievable. But you know, Christianity has kind of become entertainment in our day. Whether it's on television or so many times in the pulpit. It's just entertainment. It's just, you know, make me feel good. Make me, make me happy. Make me, let me leave here with a, a nice little moral platitude that I can take with me and we can, you know, I can go out in the world and feel good about myself until I get back next week. I've always been impressed. If you've never read it, you ought to read it. It's an old book. But I've always been impressed with Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He wrote this book in 1985, so what he said then is, is about 20-fold today, I think. But, but he, understand this, Neil Postman is not a Christian. As a matter of fact, he's Jewish. He's a Jewish cultural commentator. And, and we wrote this book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I found the whole book very uh, amazing in so many ways. But the most amazing chapter he had, I thought, was, was chapter starting on page 115 entitled, Shuffle Off to Bethlehem where he analyzed contemporary Christianity as he viewed it on television. This is what Postman said. He said his analysis was that the unwritten law of TV preachers is this. You can get your share of the audience only by offering people what they want. So if they want a lapel pin, you give them a lapel pin. If they want a prayer cloth, you give them a prayer cloth. If they want to be promised to, to give $100 and get 1000 back, you tell them that if they give $100 and get 1000 Whatever they want, and all that's material stuff, whatever they want, you give it to them. Postman, a Jewish cultural commentator, not a believer, not a Christian, goes on to say, this is an unusual religious creed. You think? There is no great religious leader. And he lists a bunch of them, but I'll just pick three. From Moses to Jesus to Luther, who offered people what they want, only what they need. Only what they need. He concludes by saying this. I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and a serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another religion altogether. It is another religion altogether. I don't have time to go to the book of Acts. I wish I did. I would be here long into the afternoon if I did, but... If you go to the book of Acts, one of the things you find about the early Christians is they were radical for Christ. 
I like that word. They were radical for Christ. They didn't care what people thought. They didn't care what people said. They didn't care what it took. They were ready to say, I'm even ready to die with him if that's what it takes. As, as Paul said, you know, I just want to know him. I just want to know him in his death and resurrection. I just want to know the power of his life and death in my life. I want to be obedient. I want to be called to do what he's called me to do. And that is a radical thought for 21st century Christianity. But that's what the early church was. They were radical. As the church began to grow and began to spread and was radical in so many ways, it began to de-radicalize, began to institutionalize. Church fared a whole lot better when they were having to hide in homes and in caves for fear of being killed than when we can come sit in air-conditioned buildings and comfortable chairs and, and, and watch our watches and say, we're going a little long today because we are. Not the two-minute warning there. I mean, we're institutionalized. The church is viewed by many people in the church as an institution. Not, not, a, not a radical movement of God's grace by God's disciples across the face of the earth. When I was in college, back in the dark ages, I grant that. But I remember in 1969, sitting on the campus of the University of Alabama and flyers being handed out. This was the day of Abby Hoffman and the hippies and the anti-Vietnam War protests. They burned down a gym on the University of Alabama campus, and we got out of final exam in second, exam second semester. It was the greatest thing on earth, on world, in the world, uh, at least for that perspective. But I remember Abby Hoffman was coming to town, and they, they were handing out flyers all over campus, and, and, and you, you took one from these radicals because they were going to make you take it more there I took it back to my dorm room and I remember reading a letter that was in this particular pamphlet I want to read it to you it's a letter from a radical said we radicals have a high casualty rate we are the ones who get shot and hung and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and every other way made as uncomfortable as possible a certain percentage of us get killed we radicals don't have time for movies or concerts. We have, we, are described we have been described as fanatics. We are. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor. We struggle for revolution. We radicals have a philosophy of life which no amount of money can buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life, and we subordinate our petty personal selves to a great movement of humanity. If our personal lives seem hard and our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the cause, then we are adequately, comp adequately compensated by the thought that each of us, in his own small way, is helping do something to make the world better. That's questionable. That's what they thought. There's one thing about which I am in dead earnest, and that is the radical cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mystery, my bread, and my meat. I work at it in the day, and I dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens, as time goes on. Therefore, he, he's writing this to his girlfriend, he says, Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. 
I evaluate people, books, ideas, actions according to how they affect the radical causes and by their attitudes toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas. And if necessary, I'm ready to die a martyr. You know what this sounds like? Sounds like it could have been written in first century Christianity. Sounds like it could have been written in the, in the book of Acts. Because that's where they were. They were being jailed. They were being ostracized. They were losing their jobs. That's why the church came together and had all things in common and cared for one another. Because you might be out of a job tomorrow if you profess Christ. And I know you say, well, that's not that way in America. And thank God it's not in so many levels. But let me tell you something. Around the world, it is that way. I got this in the mail this week from Open Doors. It's World Watch List 2018. It's 50 countries where it's most dangerous to follow Jesus. 50 countries where you may very well be in prison, lose your job, lose your family if you profess Jesus Christ. I could read you letters out of there that would just blow your mind. You might see them at some point in the near future. The point is this. The early church was radical for Christ. They, they didn't care what it cost them. They wanted to be obedient to him. As the, as, we, as the church began to be institutionalized and you had all these hierarchies within the church and all these, all these officers within the church and some of them who knew Christ, some of them who didn't, but they had religious ecclesiastical authority, there was a vacuum in radicalness. Church was no longer radical. Church was no longer saying whatever it costs. And Jesus said, you've got to count the cost. You know, if you're going to build a tower, you've got to know what, you're going to, what it's going to cost. Or you're going to be laughed at. If you're going to, whatever you're going to do, you've got to count the cost. And most Christians today, if you ask them, why are you a Christian? They will say this, because I asked Jesus into my heart. I just got one question. And I ask this if everybody tells me that. And I'm told that almost weekly. Would you give me a chapter and verse from the Holy Scripture on that? Just, just tell me where Jesus said, just ask me into your heart and you'll be saved. It's not there. It, it does, Paul did say to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth, and be, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. That lordship stuff scares us to death. Because if he's Lord, that means he is over us in every possible way. He tells us what to do. He tells us what is most important. He tells us what our idolatries are. And he calls us to turn away from our idolatries and turn to him. I remember Billy Graham told the story one time when I heard him on television. I searched this down. But he said a university student in Moscow, they were going to do a crusade in Moscow, and a university student in Moscow told one of my colleagues some time ago when he was there, and I quote, you Christians say you're going to win the world, but we've done more in 50 years than you've done in 2,000 years. And you know why? It's because you are uncommitted. We are committed. We 
will win. You'll see. This morning, while we're sitting here in our comfortable space, our, use a politically correct phrase, our safe space, we're, we're sitting here and we're enjoying it and we're, we're enjoying one another. There are Christian brothers and sisters. I put this in my Grace Notes article this week. I hope you read it. There are Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea who are languishing in the worst prisons that you can imagine. Literally concentration camps. The, the story was by Voice of the Martyrs this past week, in their, or last couple of weeks ago in their, in their magazine. They, they told the story. They're asking us to pray for the Christians in North Korea. They said, Young Jaw spent six months in a harsh labor camp called a Kurososo. I can't say it. Kurososo. Hear this. About 30,000 of North Korea's estimated 100,000 Christians are in one that's far worse called a Kawanlaso. Worse than the other where Young Jaw was. 100,000 Christians, 30,000 are thought to be suffering in one of four of the most notoriously cruel camps in North Korea. I'm not a mathematician, and math was never my strong suit. But if you got 100,000 Christians and you got 30,000 in prison for their faith, that's 30% of the church in North Korea. I don't even think about that. I don't think about that enough. I don't think about what it means to, to follow Christ even when it hurts because it doesn't hurt me, folks, and it doesn't hurt you. It thrills my soul to see our young people going out to Brazil and Guatemala and Ireland and, and, and doing all those things like Catherine's about to do next week. That, that thrills my soul that they've got a passion to take the gospel to people where they need to hear it. And Ireland and Guatemala and Brazil need to hear it. But you know what? They need to hear it in Syria and Iraq and North Korea. They need to hear it where the gospel has not been broadcast like it has in the United States. And they need to hear it by God's people Grace Baptist Church. You say, I can't, I can't go. I can't go to any of those places. No, we, we're, all of a sudden, it's amazing. When we first got started, we couldn't, we had to turn people away from going on just short-term mission trips to Peru. Now I have to beg people to go on one-week mission trips. Oh, I'm too busy. You know, I got this. Maybe the cats are playing basketball that week, or maybe I've got to do this or that, and all of our idols get in the way. If revival comes to Grace Baptist Church, as we're praying that it does, we'll cast down our idols. We sang that. If revival comes to, to Grace Baptist Church, doesn't mean we're going to take up everything we got and go give it to aim they would love it if you would don't get me wrong but doesn't mean you got to do that or to god's food pantry or any other of our ministries we minister to what it does mean that that which you have is secondary to your love for christ
that Christ has a greater hold on your life than anybody else. When, when Jesus said there in, in the Gospel of, of Luke, when he said, you know, you got to hate your mother and father and children and, and everybody else, he's not saying you disrespect them, you cut off all contact with them, you, you, you are just ugly toward them and you, you just show them hatred. That's not, he's using a Semitic idiom that just means you got to love them far less than you love me. And that, Matthew kind of clarified that. Whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, or loves his son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If your possessions or your profession or your family is keeping you from serving Christ, that is an idol. Bill Haynes didn't say it. Don't get mad at me. Christ said it. We live in a day where I don't even think, I think that's even a stretch. We want to be kind of radical. Maybe I'm going to write a book, not radical at all. Just lukewarm. Just comfortable. You see, I think God is calling some of you who are, are setting comfortable in retirement to go and minister my prayer, Reddish, mine and Reddish prayer is that when God does bring me to retirement and that is coming, I'll not be a news flash, 67 years old. That day is coming. We're praying, God, show us where we can go and serve you on the retirement income that we have, have by, a lot by the graciousness of Grace Baptist Church, we have in an account that will give us a salary. Where can we go serve you? For your glory. It may not be for the rest of our life. It may be a month or two months or six months. I don't know. But, but it'll be to go and be obedient to Christ. What is God calling you to do that you can do if you're not committed to comfortableness more than you're committed to discipleship? Are we in the church of Jesus Christ in 2018? Just kind of amusing ourselves to death? It used to be when I was younger, many, many years ago, that would always, the, the, the evaluation would be, Hey, you know, we can do that. We can go do that because there's nothing we need to be doing ministry-wise. There's nothing, there's no worship, there's no uh, activities, there's no mission activities. So we can go do that activity as a family, and we can go do that, and we would do it. And, but today, the question is, can we go to worship? I don't know, you know. We got this, and we got that, and the school's asking this, and all, and everything's pulling us. And the question today is, is it convenient to go worship or is it better to go do something we want to do out in the world? I saw some of you, and I said we might be here all afternoon. You know the cats are playing at 1 o'clock, and you got real nervous. I know some of you tonight won't be back at 6 o'clock for our, for our worship time and as we talk about prayer and the Great Awakenings because <laughs> they, got the, they got the big dance show. we got to see where the cats get put. Let me tell you something. They're going to announce where the cats are put, and an hour later when you get out of here, it'll be on paper, and you'll know. 
They're not going to change it just because you're not watching it. But which is more important, watching the NCAA suck you into idolatry or being here to pray with your church family and talk about great awakenings and talk about a need for prayer before Almighty God and get on our face before God? Or is it going to be, no, 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 no. I'm going to amuse myself to death because I'm a 21st century American Christian. Folks, this is, this is stabbing me just as hard as it's stabbing you. If it's stabbing you, I hope it is. I hope I'm not the only one getting beat up up here by Jesus. God help us. In our country, Christianity became institutionalized. And every other radical group began to fill the vacuum of reality. God's statement of what marriage is by a few loud radicals has been totally redefined. It has. What is clear biology X and Y chromosomes coming together determining gender has now been totally eradicated by a few radicals because Christianity ceased to be radical. Ceased to say, no, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. Oh, we got a few out there who say it and, and they say it loudly and some of them say it ugly. Folks, we need to be loving these people but loving them with the gospel. There'll never be a vacuum. When Christianity pulls out, something else floods in. And I guarantee you, they're willing to die for their radical causes. Are we? Pray with me.